And let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Philippians as we're studying it on Sunday mornings. If you're with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, it'll, uh, in order to really appreciate what we do in this part of the service, you'll need one. Just raise your hand right now where you are and there'll be men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. They'll spot you and get one into your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Also, uh, as uh, they're finishing that, a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we'll be continuing in our study of the Gospel according to John this evening. Each of you are invited. Philippians. Did I say Philippians or Revelation? Okay. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains, uh, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. And the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, hoping, uh, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word. We love uh, the truth of it. We love how it impacts our minds. We love the rich themes and truths that are introduced into our hearts and our minds. And, and Lord, we long to have the realities that are described here by Your Holy Spirit to be worked into the daily of our living and our thinking and the daily of our Christian life. And that takes a work of Your Holy Spirit and we pray that Your Holy Spirit would take these verses off of the printed page, show us the living place that they can have in our lives in order that we might enjoy the fullness of the Christian life that You sent Your Son to provide to us. We pray for this work of Your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul uh, continued his letter, and we remember that it is a letter. He has kind of uh, finished uh, the introduction to any letter in the ancient world, and uh, ancient, the letters in the ancient world are very similar to the ones that we have today where we say, dear so-and-so, and then uh, we reach a point in the letter where we give a, at least a brief update in terms of our circumstances. I'm doing well, I hope you're doing well, before we then move on to kind of the body and the, and the main purpose of the letter uh, that we're uh, writing. And so, uh, very early in this, in this letter, Paul includes this uh, update on how it is that he is doing. And, uh, of course, his update, because the uh, letter to the Philippians is inspired Scripture, is far more weightier, is far weightier than anything that we typically write. And, in, in our letters. Paul knew that the church loved him and uh, they were concerned for his well-being, so concerned that they sent Epaphroditus to make 
the long journey to him to check in and see what they could do to help him in his imprisonment there uh, in Rome. And so they, he knew they'd be eager for news about how he's doing, and so he provided them this personal update. And he does it, though, with a, a larger purpose. The Apostle Paul usually kept these personal kind of comments until the very end of his uh, letters. Uh, but uh, here he wanted to make sure that his imprisonment wasn't a discouragement uh, to them or a stumbling block to them, and uh, that they know that it hadn't hindered the advancement of the gospel and, didn't, uh, and he didn't want to make sure that it didn't rob them uh, of their joy because uh, the circumstances certainly had not robbed Paul uh, of his joy. So if you've ever known a friend that is in deep circumstance, uh, difficult circumstances and uh, they seem to be uh, joyful about the circumstances, then you walk away from them and you say to yourself, well, if they're not bummed about it, then I can't be bummed about it. And uh, that's kind of the tone that, that Paul is uh, laying out here. Of course, Epaphroditus was bringing the letter back to the church at Philippi. He's who they sent to check up on Paul. Uh, Epaphroditus would have his own news of how Paul was doing. And, uh, but that would be through his own kind of uh, grid that he would deliver that. Paul wanted to make sure that uh, they heard it directly from him. You notice that phrase in verse 12, the things which happened uh, to me. And what's encapsulated in that phrase, the things that have happened to me, uh, are all uh, things that uh, individually, let alone put together in the cluster that they are, would be enough to rob any Christian of any joy uh, in their life. I mean, humanly speaking. And, uh, and uh, to settle in and say, well, if this is the Christian life, then I'm just going to settle into a long, joyless uh, Christian life. And so when Paul says, uh, the things that have happened to me, uh, this includes all of the things that began three years earlier in his life from the writing of this uh, letter when he was rescued from a religious mob in the area of the temple in Jerusalem, rescued by a cohort uh, of uh, Roman soldiers uh, who delivered Paul from being uh, torn to pieces and put to death uh, by the Jews there uh, in the area of the temple. That was followed then by a plot upon his life to assassinate him uh, for being a Christian and sharing the gospel. Then he was taken on to the city of Caesarea. He remains there without charge for two years uh, under the uh, governors Felix and Festus. And then at the end of the two years, as a Roman citizen, the Apostle Paul uh, claimed his right as a, a Roman citizen to hear, have his case heard by Caesar, and he appealed to Caesar. And, uh, and his case, was, he was then sent to Rome uh, by sea as a prisoner to, uh, to Caesar for that trial. He's awaiting it as he writes this letter. Uh, you might remember the journey involved a shipwreck and involved landing on the island of Malta, and being uh, bitten by a, a viper there, being snake-bitten, and, uh, and then uh, on to Rome where he was delivered by the centurion who was escorting him, uh, then to the captain of the prison guard there. And uh, Acts chapter 28, we're told, 
that Paul was allowed a private living quarter while he was awaiting trial, uh, where he could hire his own uh, living quarter uh, near the Roman barracks and probably was allowed this freedom as a prisoner because there were no charges that had been uh, leveled against him uh, as yet. But in that private quarter, uh, even as it was, he was still under guard by a Roman soldier. And that would be his condition in Rome for two years, chained to a Roman soldier 24-7, and not just any Roman soldier, but a, uh, a soldier from Caesar Nero's Praetorian Guard. And so these soldiers were chained to Paul in four-hour shifts, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, uh, possesses no privacy at all, zero privacy uh, at all. He couldn't even go to the bathroom alone. And so you think about how trying all of this would be, uh, chained, uh, living a one-room uh, existence. Uh, it might be okay with someone who is a couch potato, but the Apostle Paul was no couch potato. Uh, he had been uh, on three missionary journeys that uh, covered much of the Roman Empire, pioneering churches and establishing churches. And here's a man who not only loved his freedom, but he used his, his freedom. This is the kind of man who's been uh, incarcerated uh, now and imprisoned, though he's completely innocent of all of the false accusations that have been made against him, uh, his reputation uh, has been dragged through the mud, and of course the news of this humiliation of the Apostle Paul would have spread far and wide uh, in the Roman Empire. And now, and I exhort myself in all of this, uh, it is good for us to put uh, up against all of this that Paul was in the middle of, uh, what you and I allow to rob, of, rob us of our joy in our Christian life. And it makes it, those things look silly by comparison. And so I would consider the Apostle Paul to be something of an expert uh, to speak on the subject of rem uh, continuing in a life of joy in the Christian life despite the worst that can be thrown at us. And so uh, when we're in these kind of trying circumstances that are robbing us of our joy, we don't want <clears throat> excuse me, the counsel of someone who has never known difficulty in their life or never known difficulty on a par with what we find uh, ourselves in, in the middle of. We want someone who is an expert in maintaining joy in very, very difficult circumstances. And we have just such an expert in the Apostle Paul. I want you to notice in <clears throat> verse 12, the latter part of it, that word actually. Because the word actually, as Paul uses that, it carries the idea of a pleasant surprise. And so when a friend says uh, to you, maybe in a difficult circumstance, or you've been unjustly treated, and they'll say, boy, you must really be steamed over this. Uh, or you must really be disappointed at what has happened uh, here. And then if you reply to them and you say, well, actually, uh, that actually means you're going to tell them that just the opposite uh, of what you would think uh, it, it would, uh, would happen 
uh, uh, the opposite of it has happened. And Paul is saying, I know that things appear one way, and as it relates to my circumstances, it looks like every single bit of it is working against me. But actually, things are very different from how they appear uh, uh, to be. And then he uh, spoke about the things, the pleasant surprise behind his uh, imprisonment there in Rome and uh, the actually, and in verse 12 he said, first of all, it resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. That word furtherance in the original language, the Greek language, the Greek language is very much a language that is intended to produce a picture within our minds. And this certainly is one of those uh, words. <clears throat> and the word for f uh, furtherance there was a word that was used to describe the cutting away of trees or undergrowth to accommodate the advancement of an army uh, into new territory. And so what Paul was communicating here is that the, all of these things that he had been through, they were no accident. That they were the means uh, by which God was taking His Gospel, His Kingdom, the Kingdom of God, into territory that it couldn't have uh, uh, penetrated by any other means. And as we see, bringing the Gospel right into the governmental structure of, of Caesar Nero's uh, Rome, and then right into uh, his household itself. These circumstances brought him and the Gospel uh, into contact with people that he recognized I never would have come into contact with uh, uh, without these circumstances. It would have been impossible. It took these circumstances to bring me into contact with these people. And so his uh, imprisonment hadn't brought an end to his uh, ministry of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. It had merely delivered him, he recognized, into a different part of that same harvest uh, field. The second, actually, here, things uh, being different than they would appear, uh, it had been become evident to the whole palace guard and beyond, he said, in verse 13, that Paul's imprisonment was not for any wrongdoing, that his chains were in Christ. He was in prison not for any criminal wrongdoing, not in prison for any political wrongdoing, but he was in prison for simply being uh, a follower uh, of Jesus Christ and being obedient to God's call upon uh, his life, telling people about Jesus. Significantly, we're told that uh, this uh, news and this realization that uh, became clear to people that he wasn't in prison because of any wrongdoing uh, that this assessment became the assessment of the whole palace guard. And here Paul is referring to uh, the praetorian guard. The praetorian guard were the personal bodyguards of the emperor, of Caesar. They were the, the troops that were responsible for his safety, responsible for his uh, well-being. They were hand-picked from among the veteran legions uh, of Rome, and, uh, and they were the elites of that 
Roman army, which was the envy of the armies of the ancient world. They would have been comparable to what are our special forces or our uh, navy seals. Again, the reason they were mentioned here is that for two years, 24-7, one of these soldiers was chained to Paul uh, because Paul was an official prisoner uh, of, uh, of Rome. And so six shifts every 24 hours over a period of two years, that equals, I know you wonder what is the math on this. I've done the math on it. It equals 4,380 shifts of the Praetorian Guard uh, being chained to Paul. And so these men had uh, spent long, long hours with the Apostle. A total of 17,520 hours. If you could arrange it and have a raffle uh, and a a bidding war over the, the possibility of spending one hour with the Apostle Paul. I don't know where the bid would go uh, today, but here is these cumulative hours that these, these uh, men that made up this force spent with the Apostle Paul as he met with people who came in and out of his lodging, as he prayed with them, as he talked about things in the light of Christ, as he dictated uh, the letters that are, became and are the prison epistles, other letters that he wrote, uh, as well, and, uh, and they watched all of that. And, though, and without a doubt, Paul being the lover of the souls of Jews and Gentiles, but he was the, the apostle to the Gentiles. They recognized his concern for them, his concern for their soul. Without a doubt, he shared uh, the way of salvation through Christ to uh, each of them. And again, here you have these very tough uh, battle-hardened men who came to respect Paul's character and uniformly became convinced of his innocence concerning any kind of wrongdoing. Uh, and in fact, we're told that Paul had become the talk of the entire prison system there in, in Rome. Uh, people were asking, uh, even among the Praetorian Guard, have you been chained? to that prisoner from Caesarea. Now, why do you ask? Well, he's an interesting character. Uh, uh, He has people coming in all day long. And they're the nicest people that you could ever expect to meet a prisoner in a Roman prison. They're very impressive. And, And the only thing is he as he talks with them and shares with them, they pray together, the only thing he could be guilty of is talking about someone named Jesus all the time and and our need to trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. Now we read about here that the Praetorian Guard, even the Praetorian Guard, uh, came to a favorable conclusion concerning Paul and his innocence. But that's a more remarkable thing and sometimes uh, we uh, give it credit for being and just kind of reading through uh, the passage. Uh, this favorable view of, the, view of the Apostle Paul by the Praetorian Guard was no small thing. I would guess that the second most cynical group of people in the world 
toward any criminal accused of a crime and in custody would be law enforcement officers. I, I would guess that the single most cynical group in the world toward any criminal accused of a crime and in custody would be a prison guard. And here the praetorian guard are both. And it's like police and prison guards, they, of course, over time, they're going to hear it all, they're going to see it all, they're going to become distrustful of people for their own safety and for their own survival. And yet here Paul won them over, not only with his words, but also with his example. And that uh, says a lot, that takes a lot. Because cops and prison guards, uh, they're, they're not prone to fall for con men. Uh, they've seen and heard every con uh, they could, a, a person could ever come up with over a period of time. And uh, they're going to never fall for someone who is all talk and no walk. A consistent walking uh, the talk and, and talking the talk is still the best answer uh, to accusations, false accusations that are made uh, against us as Christians. The best way to win the respect of people, the most jaded people uh, uh, by life or the most jaded of people by whatever their experience against Christianity uh, around us uh, is for them to see a life that is being lived genuinely, simply for Christ before them, and then hopefully their hearts will be uh, softened to Jesus and to Christianity as well. But it never will be uh, without running into Christians that are, are like this. And so the Word came not only to the Praetorian Guard, but He tells us to all of the rest. And uh, so, again, the Apostle Paul, uh, as a result, uh, as a result of his ministry, Jesus had become the talk of the entire uh, palace. To give us a sense for the amount, the level of influence that the Apostle Paul had uh, in, in this regard, he reveals it later in his letter in chapter 4, verse 22, when he closes it by saying, All of the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Some of Caesar Nero's household had become Christians and were on some level in fellowship with the Apostle Paul. Now, the third actually, uh, in terms of this situation that Paul brings up, the surprise concerning his imprisonment, the surprise that you might not think would happen, is that there were Christians in Rome. Remember that before Paul came to Rome as a prisoner, there was already a church. Paul had already written his letter to the church in Rome uh, by this time. So there were Christians in a church already in Rome, but as they watched Paul's boldness in continuing his calling as a Christian as, and as an apostle, in the context of that Roman uh, imprisonment in sharing the gospel while he was in 
uh, changed. They were stirred to boldness themselves to then speak the Word of God and the Gospel uh, uh, without fear for themselves. And so, his example not only uh, impacted the unsaved in Rome, but the saved as well. As you might imagine, under Caesar Nero, and quite a persecutor of uh, the early church, the persecution would become even greater after the writing uh, of this letter. But uh, Rome was a place of persecution for Christians, and you, so you could see where the body of Christ, the Christians, the church there uh, in Rome, would just uh, quietly you know, become silenced uh, in, in terms of sharing the Gospel, in terms of being open about uh, sharing the Word of God and speaking it in their daily conversations. But Paul continuing this in his circumstances in chains, openly identifying with Christ in this environment, it encouraged them to do the same as well. Of course, fear is one of the most contagious things in life. And, uh, but it's not the only thing that's contagious uh, in, in life. Faith is contagious. Uh, courage is contagious as well, and we see it here. And I'd like us to ask, just in the privacy of our own hearts this morning, those of us who are Christians, to just examine our lives and ask ourselves whether we're being an influence for fear or for faith through our lives. In our marriages, um, in our families, among our peers, uh, within the church. And it's so easy to slip into a place where we become an instrument of advancing fear rather than faith among the body of Christ and among the unsaved world. Well, all of this was Paul's way of communicating that God had used all of these difficult circumstances in his life in order to bring, <clears throat> bring him into a place of spiritual influence that he could have never arranged on his own that he could have never accomplished if he had all of the money in the world to try and accomplish it. And he recognized that these difficult circumstances had landed him in a very unique and a uh, very influential uh, position. And then in verses 15 through 17, the Apostle Paul, he observed in these Christians that began to speak the Gospel and speak the Word without fear. Some of them did it with good motives. Some of them did it with uh, bad motives. Some preached Christ out of goodwill and love, he tells us in verse uh, 15 and 17. That is, their motive for sharing the Word of God, their motive uh, toward other people uh, was, was one of goodwill. And when it talks about sharing preaching Christ out of, out of love. They were doing so out of a love for the Apostle uh, Paul. They said to themselves, in effect, we want to do in the city of Rome what we know the Apostle Paul would do in the city of Rome if he wasn't chained in that cell. And out of their love and respect for him, uh, they proceeded to do that. There were others that preached Christ from impure motives, uh, verses 15 and 16, their aim was to add affliction to 
of the Apostle Paul to add, make his imprisonment even more painful uh, for him. So to kind of discourage him in his imprisonment, to hear uh, the news uh, of them, they, they began to try and, and take over his position of authority and influence uh, among the Christians within the church uh, in Rome. And uh, knowing that he lacked the uh, physical ability to hinder it in, in any way. And their motivations, very impure motivations, are given to us here. They did it out of envy. In verse 15, they were envious of the fact that the Apostle Paul had come into Rome. He was an apostle. And as the apostle, he became the central focus of the church there in terms of, of apostolic authority. This threatened some existing leadership within the church in a carnal way and they began to oppose him uh, as a result. Uh, the motivation of strife in verse 15, uh, that word strife means contention. It means to canvas for office to get people to support you. And so uh, they started to work the congregation, to work Christians in the city, to try and get them on their side uh, in opposing Paul's authority and, and his influence. Also motivated by selfish ambition, in verse 16, they wanted to elevate their ministries above uh, the Apostle Paul, and then they did it uh, out of insincerity. They had no real concern uh, for the people that they were sharing the gospel uh, with. Uh, they were doing it just out of uh, the hope of adding affliction to uh, the Apostle Paul in his imprison imprisonment. And so, on top of the the difficulty of his physical circumstances. Uh, he also had to deal with these very difficult, uh, very, very uh, carnal people, Christian uh, people, and uh, that's usually the harder of the two situations. Uh, people problems are typically harder uh, than, than the, the physical kind of problems. Well, if we didn't know any better, we might think that the Apostle Paul would... <clears throat> find it just absolutely impossible uh, to, uh, to find any cause for joy in the middle of this, but, but he did. And we're told where he found <clears throat> those causes of joy in verse 18. Paul uh, rejoiced that despite the carnality and, and despite the carnal motives of some, he rejoiced in the fact that Christ is preached. Word of God doesn't return void. Uh, it, it accomplishes the purposes uh, for which it was sent out, whatever the motivation might be. And he said, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. In that uh, word this that is there, it's in the singular. Uh, and what it tells us is that Paul looked past everything else and he looked for a cause for joy in these circumstances, and he set his focus on, on this. Now, it's important to understand a couple of things here. And first is to notice that these carnal troublemakers did not preach a false gospel or false doctrine. Paul could never say, I rejoice in them preaching a false gospel. They preached a true gospel with bad motives. 
and God was bringing good fruit uh, out of uh, even, uh, even that. And, and so uh, Paul uh, rejoiced in the fact that at least people were hearing the name of Christ and the means of salvation. Second Paul here, he's not endorsing bad motivation in Christian service. He's not advocating or saying it's no big deal uh, if we're uh, carnal or selfishly ambitious uh, or in our uh, Christian service. He's not endorsing uh, the motivations of these uh, men. He is saying that even these things were dwarfed in his mind by his love for Christ, uh, his desire for every human being to hear the name of Christ, uh, the joy that he experienced in knowing that people were hearing uh, that name, and, uh, and then be changed by the gospel uh, that Jesus has provided to us. And so Paul, he took the gospel, he took God's uh, offer of salvation to mankind, uh, he took the name of Christ, he took those who were hearing the gospel, those who were trusting in Christ and being saved, and he put all of that on one side of the scale. And then he put all of these terrible motivations on the other side of the scale. And to him, there was no comparison between the significance of the two in the grand scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things. This was a cause for joy. And here you have the Apostle Paul and characterizing his life that a situation did not have to be perfect for him to experience joy. And that's a good word for some of us that, uh, in our, our lives. For him, he could find a cause for joy in even situations that were imperfect. And if we're going to experience joy in this life, then we're going to have to find joy in circumstances that are imperfect because most of them uh, uh, are. And so Paul looked at it and he said, it's up to God to deal with their motives. And Paul knew that God deals with our motives in our Christian service, and, uh, and it was up for Paul and, and others, the church at uh, Philippi here, to rejoice in God's grace and in all of it. Now, I want to close with an application, and to close once again with an application having to do with the possibility uh, and the sources of joy in the Christian life uh, whatever our circumstances might be. I want you to notice again in verse 12 how this letter begins, and then in verse 18, how it ends. In verse 12, he writes, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And then in verse 18, uh, as he bookends this, he says, And in this I rejoice, Yes, and will rejoice. And what excited the Apostle Paul here was not to inform the church in Philippi or us uh, related to his physical circumstances, but to declare how that against all odds, in the midst of so uh, miserable a set of circumstances, that all of it had become a cause for joy in Him. 
and for them to notice with him that the only explanation for it was the providence of God. The sovereignty of God that was so fully on display in his circumstances. Paul recognized that this whole thing uh, was a God thing. That God was doing what Paul had told the church in Rome God is always faithful to do. And one of the most famous verses in the Bible on God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty means that God rules over all and He overrules all for His purposes. And that verse is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where working, that God was working all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are uh, the called according to His purpose. And a key source of joy in Paul's life was to recognize in the midst of very difficult circumstances that God was working them together for good. And he saw it. He recognized it. And to notice that sovereignty of God in that situation. And to know that God is at work in our lives is a source of great comfort and it's a source of great joy at all times. But especially when we're in deep trial and deep difficulty, whether having to do with our physical circumstances or having to do with relationships within, within our lives. To know that these circumstances aren't a waste that they're not working against me in some kind of an ultimate way, but instead they're the means by which God is accomplishing something, some great purpose, either in my life or, or through my life. And the recognition that here were priceless purposes that were occurring that could not happen as effectively any other way. And then like Paul when that actually moment occurs in our lives in these kind of circumstances, and we recognize God's fingerprints all over the situation, we recognize His sovereignty. He's ruling over all, and He's overruling all of it for His purposes, then we can uh, rejoice. And the fact that He is ruling over all and overruling all, uh, the fact that that is there to rejoice in, uh, is given in the fact that it is always going on. God is always doing it. Every moment in, in each of our lives uh, as uh, Christians. And since it's better to... Uh, experience that actually or that aha moment earlier rather than later in a trial, it raises the question, are there any hints here uh, that might help me to recognize uh, God's fingerprints at work uh, in my situation uh, so I can notice them as a cause for joy uh, in my life sooner rather than later? And yes, there is. The Apostle Paul actively looked for them in his situation, and he not only found them, 
but he shares them with us in this passage. And the fingerprints of God's working in our lives and working together for good uh, come by asking ourselves questions like, how might this be advancing the influence of God or the kingdom of God in the world around me? How might this trial or this difficulty be accomplishing that? To ask, who has this trial or these circumstances brought me into contact with that I would have never come into contact with, not through a thousand lifetimes, uh, otherwise? What spiritual opportunity is this circumstance presenting me with for their benefit? To ask the question, what Christians or group of Christians has this brought me into contact with who are in need of encouragement and in need of a godly example of courage and of boldness as opposed to living in fear and in apathy? To ask further, what spiritual fruit or what spiritual depth are these circumstances producing in my life? What spiritual maturity is this circumstance forcing uh, upon me? Forcing me to grow into? What spiritual lesson am I learning here? Where if the truth be made known, uh, in my own heart, even I would admit that I probably could not learn this lesson any other way except in a circumstance like this. And the Apostle Paul, he looked for those fingerprints and he found them when he did. And so must we. They're there somewhere in the mess and in the difficult circumstance we're in and they're there as a cause for joy. Again, Romans 8.28 is always at work in our lives. Now, candidly, the, all of this will require uh, a level of uh, spiritual sobriety and maturity uh, in me uh, for those kind of things to be a source for joy in my life in the middle of uh, difficulty. I must uh, esteem these things more important. I must esteem these things more highly than my own comfort and my own self-preservation. Uh, self and those instincts are very strong in every single one of us. But if I fail to do so, to make these things kingdom-related, of uh, significant importance within my life, the most significant the important thing in my life, then a massive source of joy uh, will never ever be effectual in our lives. God never promises that the foundation of a life of joy is going to be found in a life of abundance or in a life solely in a life of ease. If that were true, we would only experience joy in life in these intermittent spurts but that it is found in resting in His sovereignty, trusting that He is working all things together for good in my life, and then taking the time to notice 
uh, in these circumstances that God is bringing me into contact with. He is chaining me to people, non-Christians, who are badly in need of hearing the Gospel and seeing firsthand our example and the quality of human being that Jesus Christ produces. And then using my example to encourage and strengthen other Christians and then producing a godly character and, and spiritual maturity in me that uh, I can recognize couldn't happen any other way uh, in my life. And then esteeming those things as priceless. More important than my comfort and more important than my uh, ease when it is uh, required uh, of us. A key to joy in the Christian life is found in looking beyond my physical circumstances and to then notice how God is working them together for good. Most often when I'm in difficult circumstances, I'm just uh, trying to get out of them as fast as I can. Wheeling, dealing, whatever it can be. And so I'm an expert on, on how elusive joy is in dealing with circumstances in that way. And here is... Here's the way that it happens. We could look at this passage, and I guess it would preach okay, uh, and we could draw out, uh, as an example of the Apostle Paul, uh, draw out how uh, a, a positive attitude in life is much better than having a negative attitude in life. Look at the positive attitude that Apostle Paul uh, he, uh, does, uh, does here as it relates to joy have a positive attitude. That, of course, it's always better to have a positive attitude than a negative attitude. I mean, it's as good as far as it goes. But it's far better as a Christian to operate with a Romans 8.28 attitude in life. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. No Christian can enjoy or experience a sustained life of joy without operating in that Romans 8.28 attitude related to life. And so this morning, maybe that actually in your trial hasn't yet occurred in your situation. You still can't see the fingerprints of God and working it together for good. All you see is how, how hard uh, it is. But it's coming. It's already happening. But it's coming. God has promised that He's going to work it together for good. It will be something you'll be thankful for spiritually. And God always keeps His uh, promises. And so that light, we talk about sometimes having to wait for that light to go on. Um, in terms of these circumstances, it took the Apostle Paul three years before that light went on. From the time of his arrest, I'm not saying that he didn't look at his life this way in the course of those three years, but by the time that elapsed, from the time he was arrested in that area of the temple in Jerusalem to the moment of this writing uh, of, of this letter, it was those three years before he saw the big picture and to understand what God was doing here and the cause for joy 
um, that it was. Now, we don't like to hear these things in the context of three years, do we? Uh, uh, if you want to make me joyful, talk about them in terms of minutes. And, uh, but sometimes it's not like that. We deal with reality and we deal with a relationship with God. And so a key to the Christian life is found in looking beyond my physical circumstances and then to notice how God is working them together uh, for good uh, in my own life and in uh, the life of others. Well, someone might think, well, I thought you said you were going to start a series on joy, and I thought we'd be talking about um, puppies and sunrises and, and uh, things, like, uh, things like that. This seemed like it got a little theological. Well, we need the source of our joy to be more substantial than puppies and sunrises. And God has provided us a source for our joy that is much more substantial. As the Apostle Paul brings out this aspect, this ingredient of joy in these passages, these verses of this passage. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, as we stand before you as Christians, we have seen you even as if we're a brand new Christian here today, but certainly true as we've walked with you for long years and decades, we have seen you do this over and over and over again. Take circumstances and work them together for good in a way that is not only good and an encouragement and a blessing to others, the saved and unsaved, but also vital to our own spiritual growth and maturity. And yet we find ourselves then in a new circumstance, in a new hardship, in a new trial, and we can forget those things so quickly and lose our joy. So we pray that you use this time here today to refocus us on your sovereignty, that you do work all things together for good in our lives as a source of joy in the midst of the difficulties of life that we do face and we will face between now and heaven. Thank you that you have the final say. You rule over and overrule all in every single thing in our life. And what peace that brings to us, what joy it brings to us, Lord. Thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for Your interest in our lives. Thank You for how committed You are to preparing us one day, even for the glory of heaven. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.